Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to Kicking the Kairiarchy, the intersectional feminist podcast series co-hosted by me, Elena. And me, Sid. We're really glad to have had feedback from you on the last episode on class. May got in touch to say how grateful she was to have heard from Rich, Mina and Hajira, because if it hadn't been for the episode, she'd have never thought about it. We also hope that it started some conversations for you, because for both of us, we both went back to talk to our parents about our own class. So in the spirit of evaluating and challenging our own privileges and inviting you listeners to do so as well, this episode is all about age. And it's a really interesting one because I remember when we first started the podcast way back in May 2016, our very first episode was all about privilege. And I remember my mum listening to it and saying that we didn't tackle privilege by virtue of age. So we're finally getting around to do it. And I promise you, it's a really amazing lesson. The other day, Elena and I were walking to the studio to do some recordings and we were talking about our experiences of being catcalled. And something we started thinking about was that as we get older, this is likely to happen to us less, as older women are often seen as invisible. Would we miss it? Is catcalling as uncomfortable as it can be? Is that also kind of a privilege that we have that we've never evaluated? I mean, it's a really good question. And we have three great guests to help us talk about age, getting old, being old and caring for the elderly. So what kinds of challenges do older LGBTQ people have to face? And how is elderly care a feminist issue, if at all? And why is the representation of women in their 50s in film so important? But first, are you feeling a little weary, Helena? I mean, doing the day job and dismantling power structures is really tiring work. So yeah, you know that there's a mattress for that. Did you know that Casper mattresses are well-loved with over 20,000 reviews and an average rating of 4.8 stars, some of whom are intersectional feminists? No way. Oh my gosh, sold. But what if it doesn't work for me? Intersectional feminists such as yourself get to try it for 100 sleeps with free, no-hassle returns. Okay, that does sound pretty good. And I do spend a third of my time sleeping. We all do. Get 55 great British pounds off towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com and using our special promo code kicking at checkout. Interesting. So if I was to use that promo code, that would mean that I have a spare 55 great British pounds that I could then donate to charities we've spoken about on the podcast, like the Homeless Period or Refuge. Absolutely. And terms and conditions apply. 
As always, listeners, do let us know what you think of our episodes. You can email us, kickingthekaryaki at gmail.com. Visit our website at www.kickingthekaryaki.org. Tweet us at kickkaryaki. Or find us on Facebook, Kicking the Kairiaki. You are listening to episode 16 on age, and first up is Nula. I've listened to some of your previous podcasts, so I'm going to introduce myself in a way that you and your listeners will probably be used to. I'm Nula, I'm Scottish, I'm white, and I'm a lesbian. My pronouns are she and her, I'm able-bodied, I studied at university, and I worked in the BBC for many years. So I'm pretty privileged. I often introduce myself in another way. Sometimes I just cut to the chase and I say, Hello, my name's Nula, and I'm 55. The reason why that identity is important to me now is because as I've become older, I've become more aware of how things change as we age, and often not in a good way. I also introduce myself with my name and my age because I think there's a coyness around attitudes to women's middle age that I don't think is helpful. If you think back to childhood, do you remember how important it was between being seven and seven and a half? And then... When somebody's older, if somebody is, say, 85, it's important and they're proud of that number. So by introducing myself with my age, I'm trying to highlight that women are often made to or indeed choose to hide their age in middle life. And I'm saying, why are we hiding our life, our experience, our history? <laughs> intro oh my gosh and you're right you know we've never asked people to to talk about their age actually we ask people to talk quite openly about their privileges or their mm-hmm. background or their experience so that they can contribute their voice but we've actually never we've never said this is how old i am yeah so would we like to introduce ourselves to me then yeah <laughs> uh, i mean yeah my name is sid i am bi and non-trans and white and i use she and her pronouns i am non-disabled and i'm middle class i'm 26 hello, <laughs> hello. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Hi. So, me. My name is Elena. I'm 23 years old. Mm-hmm. I'm white. I'm cis. I'm non-disabled, middle class. Blonde, blue eyes, conventionally what the norm is, mm-hmm. pretty much. It's interesting that we were talking about age because I, I'm wrestling with age right now in the sense that I'm 23, so mm-hmm. I'm quite young. And pretty much everywhere I go, particularly in the industry that I work in, which is media, I'm always the youngest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. everywhere, which either means that I have to bring the freshest and the newest and revolutionise everything or I'm really young and inexperienced and nobody listens to me. I think it's interesting that you haven't asked guests before and actually it's a really important part of who we are. It means that we're taking control of something that can be used to hurt us. It's just another facet of who we are. Interesting, this idea of reclaiming your age. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit, Nula, about what it's like to be an older woman in society? Personally, for me, it feels absolutely great. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I feel genuinely liberated about what I say, what I do, how I look. I'm at one of the most creative periods in my life and I'm engaged and excited by the work I do and the projects I'm involved in. I'm the founder and director of the Women Over 50 Film Festival and that's a festival that champions the work of older women on both sides of the camera. And I'd like to quote from a documentary that we screened at our most recent festival recently that describes how it can feel being an older woman. The film is by Adele Toulet and it's a documentary called Rebel Menopause 
which I think is possibly the best name ever for a band. <laughs> so it's a documentary about Therese Clerc, who is a French bisexual feminist who died in 2016. And she was in her 80s when this documentary was made about her. And she said, I can say I've had a great life. It's been an amazing time. So while gynaecologists talk about menopause as if a woman's life is over... I say to them, no, this is when a woman's life starts. So much to think about. (laughs) What I'm finding when I talk to other older women is that there is a kind of creativity that comes in the second part of our life. They're married and they have children and about that age, children uh, leave home and women begin to think about either going back to work or often what was the thing that they always really, really wanted to do, but they had so often put other people before that. And in our 50s, women are thinking, well, actually, I'm going to look after me for a wee bit. Actually, you're super creative anyway if you're trying to run a household and do all those things. Interesting. So it's almost like a second second wind. Absolutely. <laughs> What's quite interesting, I suppose, about older women is, is the lack of visibility, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so interesting that you, you set up that festival about film. And there was a survey recently of about 2,000 movies where the female actors were increasingly marginalised as they entered their 40s. But while male stars are given more to say, do do you have any thoughts about that? And that's obviously about being in front of the camera Mm. and speaking. Yes, I have thoughts on that. (laughs) (laughs) The simple answer is sexism and ageism. Women and older people are simply not treated as fairly or as highly valued as men or younger people. And I think the why of that question is important and it's about who's got power, particularly when we're thinking about feature films and the people with power to get those films made tend to be older white men. And they tend to be interested in making films for 18 to 34 year olds. And actually, they hire in a younger version of their own likeness and they, the men in power, perpetrate the myth that a film needs a safe pair of hands. And a safe pair of hands is a male pair of hands. I think in terms of what we see on the screen, there is a real premium on youth and quote-unquote beauty. And older women, not older men, because their whys don't fit that very narrow description of youth and beauty. Okay, so then what is the impact of this lack of visibility The impact is that we are erased from screens and that we can feel invisible and undervalued in life. We want to see ourselves reflected on screen and we want to be behind the camera as directors and producers and writers. A really good example, I think, of what this lack of visibility actually means came from our most recent Women Over 50 Film Festival. And um, an academic there, Dr. Patricia McManus, delivered a lecture on women over 50 in dystopian fiction, race and gender in The Handmaid's Tale. So turn off now if you don't want to hear any spoilers. She was looking at how the TV series dealt with race and how it dealt with age. So she pointed out that there are only one um, instances of representation of people of colour in the novel. And when they remade the book for TV, they couldn't possibly create a world in North America around now-ish where there were no black people. So many of the characters in the remake were people of colour. Then when she looked at what happened to age in the remake, it was a completely different story. So in the novel, Serena Joy, the commander's wife, is described as elderly. She's got a walking stick. She's got arthritis. She's got grey hair. 
But in the TV series, she's played by the 35-year-old actor Yvonne Strahovski. Now, Patricia quoted the showrunner Bruce Miller, an older white man, on this particular casting decision. And in an interview, he describes in detail one scene where Serena Joy throws Elizabeth Moss's character, Offred, to the floor and how Serena Joy quickly gets down on the floor and shouts at Offred. And here is Bruce in his own words. This scene is one example of why having a younger Serena can pay off. The Serena Joy from the books, in pain with arthritis and using a cane, wouldn't have been able to dive down on the floor and scream in Offred's face. I think that's the vibrancy that you get from having a younger Serena Joy. Just the physical intimidation. Yvonne is whip-strong. Elizabeth Moss is quite strong too. And the two of them together, you feel like... I'd love to see them go toe-to-toe in a cage match. That's what it's about. When it comes down to it, this man, the show's creator, his fantasy is to see two young women go toe-to-toe in a cage match. He just doesn't find older women interesting, vibrant, sexy, fully human. And that's just one example of the impact this lack of visibility for women over 50 has. I'd never thought about it like that. You're erasing elements of those characters. What about the lack of speaking roles for women over 50? A recent survey of 2,000 films found that women between the ages of 42 and 60 delivered 20% of the dialogue, while men of the same age delivered almost 40%. The impact of the lack of speaking roles for older women is that we're silenced. And that's not good for older women, and it's not good for younger women or girls either, because it makes you afraid of becoming older, because you see what happens to older women. Before we were recording this, I was chatting to Sid. I'm quite embarrassed to admit this, but how one of my biggest fears when I was younger was getting old sure and it's because of the way older people are treated the way that they are invisible and not acknowledged and just and especially how women yes when you get old you're no longer attractive Mm -hmm. you're no longer desirable Mm -hmm. and that was scary for me we're all victims of the media that we consume I think it's really interesting that Meryl Streep said in the year that she turned 40 she got three offers to play witches in different movies she said, once women pass childbearing age, they can be seen as grotesque. So is it any wonder that young girls are scared of growing older? So when you're um, selecting films to show for the Women Over 50 Film Festival, are you thinking about different layers of identities as well? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're a super inclusive film festival, so we get all sorts of stories and all sorts of people making stories. Uh, films to come in. I mean, yes, we're looking for representation, but we're looking for good stories. Mm. I mean, I just want to see complex, layered individuals. 17-year-old young women are complex and and layered in a 17-year-old way, and that's fine, but that is not the only description of a layered, complex character that I want to see on screen. Is there a stereotype, then, of older women that is the go-to portrayal? I have a handy visual here. So for those of you listening on a podcast, you might not be able to see, but I am (laughs) looking at an enormous big word cloud. So I'm going to tell you the really huge words that I can look at. Forgetful, old, fragile, slow, poor, frail, vulnerable, and my favourite one, grumpy. 
they're all super negative. And one thing that we did recently in the most recent Women Over 50 Film Festival, we did our first bit of research about how women are portrayed on screen. We asked uh, participants a couple of questions. I'm going to tell you the questions and tell you some of the responses. How are older women portrayed in the media? And people said things like, as someone who's already had her day, as mothers, as grandmothers, vulnerable, weak, quite invisible. One person said, older white women are portrayed as cantankerous, passive, benign, matriarchal and submissive. And older black women are portrayed as more bossy, more matriarchal and to be feared more. The second question we asked was, how are older women portrayed in the Women Over 50 Film Festival? And the responses were, someone who can bring something of value, multifaceted and rich in content and ideas, inspiring, because ageing is inevitable, but it doesn't have to be done badly. I think in general is bad news, but I don't think it has to be. We can we can do something about that in the media that we make, in the media we consume, in what we support. And it has to be something that we all have to get behind. Yeah, that's what this podcast does so brilliantly. It says, look, see this group and this group and this group. They've all got things in common and they can all learn. We can all learn from each other and we can all support each other. Do you want to tell us a little bit about why it's important to platform older women both in front of because it's interesting because we talked a lot about representation in speaking roles but <laughs> Women Over 50 Film Festival is also about the women behind the screen as well so you can call it WAF yeah. for short so nice. it's like posh dog WAF WAF yeah. uh, um, it's a bit of a mouthful otherwise I'll tell you a little bit about how it came to be I was in my 50s I'm a writer and producer I've written drama for radio and for theatre in my 50s I wrote and produced my first short film and it was about a woman in her 50s and part of my job as a producer was to try and get this film into short film festivals and what I found was that they are run by 27 year old boys with beards you know I love me a 27 year old boy with a beard don't get me wrong but I could see that they would not be interested in the kind of film that I was making and furthermore when I was in a room at a short film festival I felt lonely because I was always the oldest woman in the room. I like young people, but I just wanted to see more people like me in the room, and I wanted to see more of me on the screen. You know, I'm just not prepared to take something like this lying down. I just said, well, I'm going to do something about it. It was very clear I wanted to do something positive, and I wanted to do something fun. So with a pal, we said, let's have an afternoon of showing short films with older women. And if we have to, we'll get a DVD of Thelma and Louise, we'll get a couple of bottles of wine, and we'll all just have a nice afternoon. And then suddenly we got 68 submissions. The rules for submission in 2015 are the same today. The film has to have a woman over 50 at the heart of the piece on screen. So she's got to be really driving the action. She can't be somebody's granny enabling somebody else to go and have an adventure. Or there has to be a woman over 50 behind the camera. So that was the writer, producer, director. But really quickly, we got 68 submissions. The personal is political. When you have a feeling, actually, if you ask other people about it, you'll often find that other people feel the same. And then we hired a community hall that had 80 seats and you build it and they come and we got 80 bums on 80 seats. So there's an interest from the filmmakers and there's an interest in watching these complex, interesting older women. What's really encouraging about hearing stuff like that 
is that you noticed that there was an issue, but that you also didn't try and reinvent the wheel. You were like, okay, I'm passionate about this. I know how to make films or produce films or I'm part of that sphere, so I'm going to do something that I can contribute to. You don't have to be this activist that's chaining themselves to Parliament to make a difference, right? Yeah. It's also interesting because you could have spent your energy trying to change the industry that you're in. Instead, you you made your own platform. I think you do have to play to your strengths in any kind of political organising, for sure. It wasn't until this moment that I've had to confront my own assumption that older people were resentful to younger people for the opportunities that they may get or Mm -hmm. their youthfulness. I'm challenging myself (laughs) with that. Like, where the fuck did that come from? (laughs) Is that a trope that exists or is this just me? I was a young woman once. I remember what it's like to be young. You know, why would I not want younger people in my life? A really interesting piece of feedback we got about the film festival. Basically, what happened at the festival is what's called intergenerational learning. So one young woman wrote on her feedback form that what she liked most about the festival was, quote, hanging out with cool older ladies. <laughs> and similarly, as older ladies loved hanging out with young women because we've got so much to learn from each other. I do not feel any kind of resentment to younger women. If I feel any resentment at all, it's to older white men who I think have just held, have held, have held on to their we, their power. You're so right. No, exactly. We've all got one common enemy, which is the white man. Watch Um, out, dudes. (laughs) Yeah. We have a lot of white men making films who come to our festival. There's the mythical old white man running everything. But actually, most of us have men in our lives. I think it's really important to see the films that men are making about older women. I really do believe that equality is not going to happen unless we're all in it together. You mentioned intergenerational learning. I rarely have conversations with older women Mm -hmm. about feminism. So one of my questions is, why is this like intergenerational learning not encouraged more? And also, do we think that young women and old women are buying into the same type of feminism? You know, when we talk about older women, sometimes we think of like a maybe an old fashioned or an outdated mm-hmm. view of feminism mm-hmm. and that it's not very, for example, trans inclusive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be, but it, I think that only happens when people aren't really in a conversation And a conversation is really about listening. And if we did listen, we'd find out actually that our feminism is really incredibly similar. All our feminism is about asking women to be treated with a bit of respect. Do you have any suggestions about how we start those conversations and those intergenerational learning spaces, I suppose? Find ways that you can be in contact with older people. I would really recommend the London Feminist Film Festival. They always have a really good range of older feminist films and films from older feminists and their panel events are just spectacular. So if there is an opportunity to go to an event, in the way that we say I won't go on a panel if it's all male, I think we should be saying I won't participate in a panel if there isn't someone of age on there. It's just about seeing people for who they are. Being older is such a tiny part of who I am. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point. Is there anyone doing amazing things at the moment that you'd encourage us to learn more about or find out more about? I thought of a whole bunch of people I thought you might be interested in. So the first one is an American one, and it's the Gina Davis Institute for Gender in Media. And it is just a go-to place if you're interested in finding out about how everybody is represented in the media. Her mantra is, if she can see it, she can be it. And that mantra was around, it was about young girls looking at the kind of media they were getting 
you know, into things like Disney films and all the rest of it. And she was saying um, they weren't seeing themselves in terms of visibility, in terms of speaking roles, in terms of career options and aspirations. And I think all of that is true. And I think it's also true for older women that if we can't see it, we can't be it. Raising Films is another British organisation that's looking at how particularly women combine caring responsibilities with making films. And actually the film industry is kind of predicated on people working exceptionally long hours and that just doesn't match with trying to either raise children or look after ageing parents or having other caring responsibilities. A couple of festivals that you might be interested in, I don't know if you've heard of the Bechdel test? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, what's that? (laughs) Okay, so let me get this right. There are three questions Mm -hmm. you have to ask yourself about any film. One, are there two women in it? Mm -hmm. Two, they have to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Three, they have to talk to each other about something other than a man. Excellent, yes. So, here in Britain, we've got the Bechdel test fest and they show and screen and celebrate films that but really good films that because it's an incredibly low bar to just pass that test um but they're highlighting that actually there's so few films that pass it uh, have you heard of f-rated films no, F- no. f-rated oh, so that was introduced by holly tarkini at the bath film festival it's expanded so much it's now a feature on imdb so an f-rated film is if it's directed by a woman and or is written by a woman and a film that's got significant female talent on screen and is written and directed by women gets to be triple F rated. So you can look up a film that's coming out or a film that you've been interested in and see if it's got F rating. The New Black Film Collective, they're a UK nationwide network of film exhibitors, educators and distributors of black representation on screen. Two final recommendations. I would really recommend, if you don't already know this filmmaker, to look up Campbell X. Campbell is a queer person of colour. Their pronouns are they and them and they've directed films like Stud Life and the most recent one Different for Girls and the reason I've got Campbell on this list is because they have a brilliant radical film manifesto so if anyone's listening and they're thinking oh I'm kind of interested in making a short film but I'm not sure if I should I'm going to tell you a few things from the manifesto Campbell says things like this get your hands on equipment any equipment will do don't be fussy just practice your craft Read books, can't afford them, then borrow them. Get them from the library. Read the classics, literature and film. Learn about your personal histories. Talk to your family. What are their stories? Forget mainstream celebrity culture. Use people from your own subculture. Look beneath the collective lies from your own culture and background and don't be afraid to be true to your own reality. Don't compare yourself to other filmmakers. You are unique. Do it. Make that film. We've all got an iPhone or a smartphone. We've all got the ability to make a short that's worthy of an Oscar. And then finally, if you're looking for a book to read, I would recommend Silent Women, Pioneers of Cinema by the fantastically named Melody Bridges. And it's a book about the early days of Hollywood. She has a stat, if you can believe it, that there were more women working at every level, director, producer, everything, in the film industry in the very early pioneering days than there are today. Really? Really. What happened? Yeah. (laughs) Read the book and find out. Yeah, Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) 
Uh, that second to last one, that manifesto, made me like quite emotional because it's kind of like the stuff that we went through when making this podcast. You just got to do it. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. You just got to go along with it. What's important to you? What are you going to stand up for? That yeah, kind of yeah. Thing. yeah. And I think it's something that anybody who wants to start anything can really relate to mm-hmm. and would mm-hmm. get a lot of benefit from that. So thank you for reading that out sure. and finding it. So what can we do to be better allies? To older women. Well, what do you think you can do? <laughs> Come on. By supporting their work. Yes. As actively going out there and reading it, watching it and engaging with it and having conversations and mm-hmm. listening. And maybe we should actually always ask people's age when they come on the podcast. Yeah, exactly. Normalise like it yeah. and reclaim it. Yeah. Some other suggestions I've got, I would say use your purse or your wallet. Find a film that has the kind of representation you want to see and support it. And especially support it on its opening weekend if you can, because that's when all, uh, studios take notice. Um, you know, like when um, when uh, Wonder Woman came out, you know, that's when we all knew that it was such a brilliant film, you know, when in that first weekend when the, the numbers just completely skyrocketed. I'd say support initiatives that champion women and underrepresented groups. The Bechdel Fest Test, F-rated films, the New Black Film Collective. I would say if you can't find the film that you want to see, then make it. Just do it. Get your in the way that you did with this podcast. There wasn't a podcast like this about, and you you made it happen. One of the easiest things you could do if you're a writer comes from Gina Davis. She says at the moment most crowd scenes are fourteen percent female, so she suggests making all crowd scenes fifty fifty. I would say say your age and be proud of it, and I would also say try and stop yourself and others saying everyday ageism. I'm thinking of people who say, oh, you don't look 55. Like, that's supposed to be a compliment. I mean, I just am the age I am. People say things like, oh, those are cool shoes. And the assumption is, and someone like you wouldn't wear cool shoes. Or, you know, when you're feeling ill and people say, oh, I feel like I'm 400 years old. Like, the only image and metaphor you have for old age is something decrepit and creaky and, you know, so I think we can try and be more positive. Amazing. Yeah, there's all these kind of like different little microaggressions that Mm. you'd never think about. Because you hear it on things like X Factor. Simon Cowell always Mm -hmm. does it Mm -hmm. whenever a woman comes on who's like 50 or Mm -hmm. 60 and Mm -hmm. he's like, oh, you look really great. And it's like, why wouldn't Fuck she you look Simon great? Cowell. Yes, <laughs> and, and and what you and what do you mean by look great? You look young. Yeah. Uh-huh. This is the final question, and this is about you platforming whatever it is that you're working on, and, and how people can find out and get involved and support it. So, go well, on, Nula. You know, you know, I'm all about the WAF. I'm all about the Women Over 50 Film Festival. So you can find us online and on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, on most social media. We're W O Five. Zero FF and our website is just woffff.co.uk. We've got a few uh, screenings coming up early in 2018 that are showing the best of this year's festival. So if you want to see all the stuff I've been talking about, come along to an afternoon of drinking gin in Mother's Ruin Gin Palace in Walthamstow in the East End of London. So that's the probably the last Sunday in January. So come along to that if you can. 
And another another prize that all our filmmakers get for WAF is that the five top films are shown on the big screen in the Picture House Cinema in Brighton, the Duke of York's. So that'll be happening early in 2018. But if you follow us on social media or follow, you know, come onto our website, you'll get updated on all the stuff that we're up to. That was Nula, who was encouraging us to reclaim our age, which I think is really interesting and definitely something that we're going to take away going forward, you know, introducing ourselves with our age, because it's definitely not something to be ashamed of or hide behind, and especially for women to feel ashamed of. Up next is an equally amazing guest, Hannah Malena, and she talks to us about how elderly care is a feminist issue. I'm Hannah Malena Dahl, and I'm 54 years old. I'm a woman. I'm white, middle class. Um, I'm a professor at Roskilde University, which is actually in Denmark. Amazing. Thank you so much. It's really wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you for making the time to talk to us. Do you want to tell us a bit about your, your research into elderly care or, and what you think elderly care is? Well, elderly care is um, the work, whether it's actually unpaid or paid, that we actually do for people that are elderly, but also that are simultaneously vulnerable and fragile. Well, that means that elderly care is is a kind of work that is being done when um, elderly, for instance, cannot, um, you know, take a shower by themselves, they can't cook by themselves any longer, or they can't, you know, get dressed in the morning by themselves, either because of arthritis or other kinds of, of sicknesses. The, the kind of care that is necessary for them to sort of lead a, a normal uh, life as possible, so to speak. What kind of age range are we talking? Well, nowadays, I would guess around late 70s, beginning 80s, that's when people begin to become fragile and and suffer from, from various kinds of deteriorations. But that might be also very culturally dependent because we noticed in at least the Nordic welfare countries that people who come from other cultures and have had other um, experiences with work and, and hard, physically hard work might get older earlier, so to speak. So that might also depend on culture and class. And, and so in that sense, elderly care is, is difficult to pinpoint and say, well, elderly people need care around their 80s. Some people might need elderly care already in the beginning of their 70s. That's an interesting idea about how you, you culture and background actually affects, has an impact on, you know, at the rate that you become elderly and when you would need something like elderly yeah. care. So why is this, why do you research this? Why elderly care in particular? When I started researching elderly care, um, which was around 20, 25 years ago, I mean, not many people were really that interested in elderly care. And the reason I took up uh, elderly care was from a feminist perspective. And the reason was that I thought there are lots of issues here about vulnerable people. And it seems to me that a lot of women are actually taking on this work. And I thought this is an issue of distribution of the burden and joys of elderly care and therefore also I think it's a question of justice because what we see in in the Nordic countries which often go as very sort of equal countries and 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 states in relation to to women's liberation and equality we still find that a lot of the elderly care is being done primarily by women up to 90 percent but it's also about 
the recognition and the misrecognition of care. It doesn't really have the same status as if you were working at Wall Street or if you were working with uh, research or if you were being a policeman or being a nurse. Elderly care is, is not sort of acknowledged to the same extent as other kinds of work. So why do you think then that elderly care is so invisible? I think it, it partly um, goes back to uh, the old Greeks and their sort of idea that um, elderly care was not as interesting as as care for children because elderly, they were deteriorating. It was the end of life. And there are lots of issues that we we don't really feel that eager to talk about uh, when, when we are concerned about elderly care. So in that sense, I think it has a historical sort of reason but I also think that it relates to that what we really don't want to talk about, which is deterioration when you're not as capable as you were in your young years, because there is so much focus nowadays on being autonomous, being able to choose, being able to govern your own life, so to speak. So we don't really want to talk about these situations or parts of life where we are not that independent, where we don't have the same kind of freedom as when we were young and eager and on, on, on the way, so to speak. So I think there's a lot of silencing going on here as well. I, I never really thought about it that way, but it's, it's really <laughs> insightful to hear about the Greeks and the history because you're right, There's, the, I know that there's a disproportionate amount of funding that goes to children's charities, for example. Yeah. But when I think about elderly care, I know very little about what we're doing. And in fact, everything that we hear in the news is that we're not doing enough to support our, mm. our elderly, certainly not in the UK. Care is thought to be something that everybody can do. So in that sense, it's just being quest often sort of talked about, discussed about, when it's discussed in the media and politics, as it's a question of hands, just to say, well, that somebody has to do the care. But it's sort of in this talk about care, there is not really very much recognition of care as something that demands love, but also demands uh, knowledge, so to speak, knowledge of the person, the elderly person who needs care and what kind of care uh, that person uh, needs. So I would say that's also a feminist perspective about the recognition or lack of recognition of of care work. So why is that a feminist issue? Why does the lack of recognition come under a feminist perspective? I think feminism is basically about equality. And it doesn't mean that everybody has to be the same, but it means that different kinds of work or different kinds of, of being would have to be recognized to the same extent. And it's also about seeing the kind of work that has usually been taken care of within the home and been taken care of by women. And that had sort of been taken as something while women normally do that, it needs to be um, recognized um, as also some work that is necessary for us to exist as, you know, a civilization. So women have been taken for granted in this kind of unpaid hidden work, I suppose. Oh, definitely. Yes. How does power and struggle have a role in an elderly care? Yeah, that's um, what I've sort of been trying to get at in my, my new book on, on struggles in elderly care. And that's because I see all over the, the Western world, we see a transformation. And when we see transformations, we often see 
people become uncertain, people have to change between the old and the new. So, so there are a lot of transformation, not just concerning gender roles, gender identities, but also, as I mentioned in my book, about globalization and neoliberalism. All these changes sort of mean that people become uncertain, that roles, identities change. And in that sense, when there are changes, there are also tensions. And these tensions tend to become struggles. Let me give you an example. What you've seen in the last 10 years, at least in the Nordic countries, is also um, mobilization and struggles from paid care workers. That means care workers either working in private firms or being employed by the state. And they sort of mobilize and want to get recognized. They want to get higher paid. They want to be seen and acknowledged. So in that sense, there are also sort of struggles happening more politically, but also within families, like in Italy, when there is an increasing amount of East European going into Italian families and actually working within Italian families to care for their elderly. And that... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Is also something that can create conflict and struggles about what is proper care, who should care, and what should I be paid, and you know what kind of care. You mentioned neoliberalism mm. a little while back. Could you explain what it is? <laughs> what is neoliberalism? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I understand that. That's a very good question because neoliberalism is something that has sort of grasped the world, so to speak, for the last 30 or 40 years. And and, and when I say neoliberalism, I mean the sort of new political thinking that changes our minds and puts increasing focus on the individual and the individual's responsibility that the elderly sort of has to care and has to be mobilized and become an active elderly. And and it's interesting because neoliberalism has also introduced a very interesting concept of self-care. Now, as, as a care researcher, I think this is a contradiction in terms because care is oriented towards the other doing something, helping, caring for another person, so to speak. But neoliberalism is, is actually trying also to push a lot of the responsibility back to the individual, back to the families, so that either you should care for yourself or or the families or the communities should care for you. That is so interesting because even just within activist circles, there's a lot of um, talk about self-care. So thinking about yeah. how that's pushing the responsibility onto the individual as opposed to the state mm. Um mm in terms of conversations around mental health and the idea that it is uh, the responsibility, I suppose, is on yourself. Well, the yeah. idea that everybody has a responsibility for self-care to themselves, but specifically mm. even more so in mental health uh, situ- situations. They're talking about, you know, feeling stressed and things like that. Yeah. But the idea that the onus is on you um, yeah. to, to care for yourself and also for, you, for your friends. And I never thought about how that had a role in also elderly care and actually who I thought was responsible for looking mm. after my my extended family and inevitably myself. Exactly. And, 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 and the thing is that there is this self-responsibilization going on. It also means... Um, that you that there isn't really a look at you know how has the labor market for instance changed in relation to the structural features like for instance in in relation to the increasing proliferancy of of stress but but also of elderly people who sort of become inactive due to either fragility or that they simply become exhausted or tired and they then are sort of increasingly pushed to become active and actually you know become active so that you can stay healthy longer and and i think we as a society also have to reflect upon what do we really demand from from people in this neoliberal era so to speak so is neoliberalism is that like a shift it's both an ideological shift that is very present in the minds of policymakers um, some states sort of really push and say, well, it's becoming far too expensive. The family needs to, to take more care. But but that's really um, problematic due to a lot of more structural um, reasons like globalization and, and neoliberalism and also the, the fragility or the instability of, of current families. So what is globalization, just so that we can... If anyone listening doesn't know what it means. Both the movement of people, but also the increasing speedy movement of ideas, so to speak. So it's both 
people migrating more. It doesn't mean that there hasn't been internationalization before, but it means that there is any, uh, that the, the movement of people is, is increasing and globalization is this increasing um, movement of people primarily from um, work-related uh, reasons, so to speak. So, the, so globalization has an impact on care in the sense that you were, when you were talking about like family structures looking after each other, if families mm. aren't close to each other, then that's obviously yeah. going to have an impact because you know you're, you're further away. And and that's interesting because we both see that the family caregivers sort of migrate and therefore it becoming really um, difficult uh, to care sort of literally being there. And, and there's this whole new idea of both Skype motherhood, but also Skype daughterhood, so to speak. But what we also see in, in middle continental Europe is also due to the expenses in elderly care that elderly people are sort of being cared of in a different country context so that elderly people are actually migrating to other countries like from Germany to Poland to actually be cared for in nursing homes in, in Poland because their families and either cannot uh, care for them themselves or cannot pay the cost in, in German elderly care. So a very new phenomena is, is actually that elderly people themselves migrate. That's really mind-opening, I suppose, to, to hear about that. I was going to ask you whether location is actually that important to care. If perhaps by travelling I might be able to work and therefore afford more money, would mm. that be then, and then I could send back more money in order to be able yes. to, to care for my extended family? When we talk about elderly care, is proximity and distance the most important factor in a family? Does economics um, play a role or would anything else play a role mm. that I've not thought of? Yes, I think you're, you're totally right in, in, in pointing out that within elderly care and, and care in general, we sort of have typically assumed that proximity was very important. And what we now see is that sort of care is changing, its forms is, is changing, so that you can in a way um, pay, you can take the responsibility of care, but means that you're sort of paying somebody else to actually perform the concrete care, maybe on a daily basis. And that's um, something that we increasingly see. And, and some people use the concept of care change that we sort of, you know, push care down the ladder, so to speak. We cannot or we won't uh, care ourselves. And then somebody else is paid for actually performing it. And typically women, either in a family context or in a more institutional context or, for instance, um, nursing home. So so that is, is a, a way of of also per performing uh, care for various reasons. And, and there is also, you know, very good reasons for actually letting other people care, uh, not just because of the lack of physical proximity, but also because um, you can have professional care workers who are much better uh, geared to and have a knowledge of, for instance, how to care with people who are uh, ridden by dementia or who have um, particular kind of, of sicknesses in old age. So, so I think you're very right in that the the, the relationship be between proximity and distance is actually changing in this more sober sort of globalized world. This type of elderly care 
differ depend on where where in the world it's happening? Oh, definitely. First of all, um, we have various cultural factors, but you also have very, very different welfare regimes, even in, in Europe. I mean, there is huge differences between Germany and, and Britain and, and Denmark, for that matter, because the states take different kinds of responsibility for elderly care. I mean, often the, the Nordic welfare, uh, the Nordic countries, Norway, uh, Sweden, Finland and Denmark are portrayed as having very extensive state um, elderly care, where the picture is much different when you talk about England, which has a much more liberal um, welfare regime, where it's sort of back to, to the family, so to speak, to care. Is there an ideal situation? What do you know from your research, like what's best? Well, I, I mean, it's different. It's, it's very difficult because as a researcher, you also, you, you have a cultural and political bias you know, uh, both in relation to, you know, where have you grown up? And although I'm very critical towards, um, you know, the the Nordic welfare model, I do think that for a lot of families and and especially um, for elderly people who don't have families and elderly people who have a problematic relationship with their families and in a society where, where women want gender equality, I think it's really important to have a state-subsidized or state-paid elderly care in order to have women being able both to be mothers, daughters, but also have a work, have a career, or or, or do the kind of paid work that, that they enjoy. So, so in that sense, I think from a feminist perspective, I think it's really important that women have a choice to be both carers, but also to have paid work in order to have a sense of economic and personal freedoms. Basically, it's kind of simple in the sense that really there should just be a choice and that the Mm. government should be able to help you make the choice in the sense that women shouldn't be forced to give the care, that there should be alternatives or at the very Mm. least recognised for their work. And I think the recognition is really important here because what we have historically seen is that it's been taken for granted that women did this kind of work. And that has, you know, in a model where paid work has become the norm, that means that women then they don't sort of earn um, pension rights from, you know, their paid work. And that can then become a situation, a problem in a situation where they, for instance, get divorced or in other situations, then they don't have that sort of economic stability or independence that they ideally would like. And that's why some feminists have also sort of nurtured the idea of unpaid family work as something where you could earn pension rights or where you sort of would get some credit for actually doing this, although it was unpaid. That would also increase the kind of choice um, women have. It's really familiar, isn't it, this idea that the majority of care work in general falls on women and Mm. therefore, you know, if you decide to um, do the care work and therefore you don't have a career or a job, you don't have any financial independence and Mm. then when that care work's done or not needed anymore, Mm. what what do you do? How do you... Have like yeah, how do you live? How do you find fulfillment? Yeah. And and I think and and I wonder if that's something that like a lot of women grapple with, especially you know today, and that you know families aren't as nuclear as they were right. like exactly. 30, 40 years ago. And so it's it's probably becoming, I guess, would it be fair to say, more of a concern 
that mm. like women need to have alternatives and I guess I, and I guess that's where this desire for recognition comes in that mm. you know there needs to be some sort of recognition now because families can be so fragmented Yes, and, and particularly because, I mean, there is also this sort of, um, a lot of women also get, you know, engulfed by by paid work, which is really very good in relation to financial independence. But on the other hand, it also could mean that, you know, you don't have anybody who actually does the caring, so to speak. And then you would have, as we already begin to see, a lot of sort of um, pushing uh, care work down the ladder to uh, migrants coming from outside Europe, the Philippines or Indians for that matter. I've realised that whilst we've been talking, I always had the assumption that everybody was entitled to elderly care, like we would all be entitled to it. But I suppose it's quite a privileged position because when you're thinking about the Eastern European person who goes to work mm. with the family in Italy, for example, mm. who's yeah. looking after their family? So exactly. I was I wanted to ask you about mm. what kind what are the dynamics of perhaps class and race that might play into who act, who is having elderly care, who is receiving it and who is providing it that I might yeah. have not have thought of. Oh, there's definitely both a class and uh, a question of racialization in, in relation to these issues, because according to a lot of scholars who, who do work in, in, in globalization and care, what we actually see is actually a lot of this work gets pushed downwards from the well-educated down to migrants from a different class background, but also from a different race, so to speak. So there is this import of of care workers to the the Western um, hemisphere, and we also see it within Europe. We see this emptying of whole villages in in Eastern Europe, where the abled sort of leave and and work, for instance, in Britain or work in Germany or other West European countries, and then what is left is the children, but also the elderly. So, uh, and in this situation, there is really no right to the elderly care to el- for the for the elderly to receive care because the states are are very sort of um, poor in Eastern Europe, don't have the sort of infrastructure set up yet. So so in that sense, um, there are different privileges to actually receive elderly care, but also, you know, there are different kinds of elderly care you can actually uh, receive, so to speak. My next question is, is there anything that you're working on that you'd like to platform? Well, I've just uh, written a book um, which is entitled Struggles in Elderly Care, and then the subtitle is A Feminist View, where I try to give a brief overview of the changes and the transformations taking care in elderly care all around basically Europe, but also all around the world, and how there is this increase, this proliferation of struggles about elderly care because of these uncertainties and changes from something old into something new. Yeah, and and I try to describe how neoliberalism and globalization and also how gender and degendering sort of works to to change the obligations and also the views of of what is care and who should provide the care. How can we and like our listeners all be allies to, to movements like this and improving elderly care? Well, well, I think you as activists are actually doing a very good 
job in actually taking on this issue uh, because I think there is this tendency to neglect or to neglect this issue or simply take it for granted uh, that you know there is elderly care and somebody is going to care about you but when you ask you know how we can sort of uh, better be allies to elderly people. I think it's really important to talk about what's happening in old age and, you know, what kind of care needs are there that we should sort of recognize that there is this kind of fragility and maybe even exhaustion for, for elderly people so that they would like to be cared for, That but that we also should respect, you know, what and in what ways they would like to be, be cared for. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and chatting to us about this. It's been so enlightening. That was Hannah Malene talking to us from Denmark about power, struggle, care and globalisation. They're really tough questions being asked about who is responsible for care and whether that responsibility is given to us is a choice or actually if this kind of forced upon us. Next up, we're going to chat to Chrissy and find out why older LGBTQ people in London need specific support. My name's Chrissy Hunter and I work for Opening Doors. I'm 55 years old. I am white. I'm a trans woman. I am non-disabled and I'm very happy. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, Chrissy. You're welcome. We, we really, really appreciate it. You work with Opening Doors. Do you want to tell us about Opening Doors? Opening Doors um, began nearly 10 years ago as a project for Age UK Camden. It started off as one group of older gay men and now we work all over London. We moved to five boroughs, then we moved to all the boroughs north of the river and finally we moved south of the river last year. Our remit is to help overcome loneliness and isolation for older LGBTQ people. We uh, deal with people uh, from 50 upwards, which is five years younger than Edge UK deal with because we think the problems are more acute for older LGBTQ people. We are now a charity in our own right. We're now a subsidiary charity. Fantastic. Why do we need a specific LGBT focus when it comes to care for the elderly? I should point out that we're not a caring service. We're dealing with people's well-being. Sure. But we're not clinicians. We don't give health care. And if we need to point people in the direction of care, then we will signpost people. But it doesn't take away from the basis of your question, of course. Well, there are a number of different issues. So if we think about people going into care, it's, uh, it's instructive. So if people, when they get older, uh, have to move into sheltered accommodation or into care homes, or if they have to have carers in the house, then there are heteronormative assumptions made about that the LGBTQ people that sometimes make them feel uncomfortable with the carers that they're given or with the environment that they're given. So if you have a group of older people sitting around talking and there are certain subjects that come up, one of the subjects might be grandchildren, one of the, the, the subjects might be marriage and of course these are not experiences that many LGBTQ people of an older generation have and this is changing now of course this is changing but it's, it hasn't changed. So that's one aspect and there's a discourse now within older LGBTQ circles about going back into the closet. So people feeling challenged or being challenged, and it could be either of the two, by people coming into the house and only seeing pictures of men or only seeing pictures of women, exciting curiosity, and not wanting to answer questions about this, not feeling secure in themselves. And so they take down the pictures and they just make the noises when people 
ask the questions or in a sheltered accommodation situation it's a very similar thing so these kind of insecurities if you have lived a life where your sexuality may have been essentially illegal then the whole issue of internalized phobia arises and how people fail to feel proud about themselves you mentioned at the beginning, um, amongst this, different generational understandings of gender nonconformity too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you elaborate on that? I can, actually. I went to a school earlier this year and I talked to their LGBTQ society and I thought it would be a good life school to get them to fill in application forms to be volunteers because my job, I should say, is I'm the volunteer coordinator for Opening Doors London and all of these young people between 16 and 18 filled in the forms and one of the forms is a diversity form and we asked people to identify their gender and their sexuality and these forms came back and it was so uplifting. Only a small minority of people identified themselves as gay or lesbian and everybody else had a different conception of their, a much more fluid conception of their own sexuality and that's exactly the same for their own identities as well so many people were bi-gendered or agendered or gender fluid or genderqueer well, certainly in the mainstream this is a recent emergence it's just a natural part of their lives and for people of my generation I've written about my own experience of being a teenager in the 1970s and coming out to my friends as gay and trying to live that gay life and realising that that wasn't quite... That wasn't what it was somehow. There was something missing. But not having a language even to discuss my my own transgenderedness. And so my experience and the experience of young adults is, is very, very different. It kind of melds with sexuality, doesn't it? So some people carried on with their identification and sexuality, and especially in lesbian communities where you've got a butch femme culture that emerged, whereas some people say now, had they had the vocabulary that people have now, would have identified differently. And I know some feminine gay men who say that had transition been a realistic possibility when they were younger, perhaps that's what they would have done. Mm. But I've also got friends my age who have essentially socially transitioned over the past 10 years, I don't know, and are now saying, perhaps I'm much more genderqueer than I thought I was, being now given the permission to be different to the way they thought they were. What happens when these uh, younger LGBT plus, uh, Mm -hmm. far more fluid identities meets an older LGBT generation? One of the things that I do is the volunteers induction. So I introduced a, a significant section where we talk about these issues and we, we, we have an intergenerational discussion and it's a learning experience. Younger people learn how difficult the experiences of older people have been and I think a lot of younger people don't really know. Perhaps they know kind of, but being faced with it in a room is, is, is a more visceral education. And the younger people, not all of whom by any means are gender fluid, but usually have the language, teach the older people a little bit about what that's about. So we're trying to do this both ways. And we do this, this is a small example of how we do this. It's one of the things that we would like to do in general. Hmm. What issues then do older LGBTQ plus individuals face that are unique to them because they're older? It's likely that older LGBTQ people will have fewer family ties. It's likely, it's not inevitable, but it's likely. We live in London and many of the older people have travelled down from different parts of the UK, from parts of the world, to escape prejudice. And when they moved down to London, many of them effectively lost contact with their, with their families. 
the communities that they joined here in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Many people report that the LGBTQ community, but they would probably say, I'm thinking now here about the gay community, is quite ageist, it's quite youth-orientated, and all of these things are kind of slightly totalising. But it's also true that the LGBTQ community has a higher incidence of drug and alcohol substance abuse in general, and people get lost. People's um, life expectancy isn't as high as for um, non-LGBTQ people in general. So the, the communities become more fractured. We're losing our gay bars in London and clubs. Well, I think we're losing them for a complicated number of reasons, but I think it hits people harder who have use these pubs in particular as you know as where they congregate and where they meet people it's often true that people have had less stable employment and therefore less stable housing histories i mean there are a whole you know range of issues and it it does kind of tie in it's not exactly class but it certainly is poverty yeah so a complex number of issues there I'm, I'm really conscious that Elena and I are two young bi women in our early 20s. These issues that you're, you're talking about, do you think that when by the time that, I don't know, we reach our 60s, 70s, that the issues will be similar or do you think they'll be very different? I think they'll be different um, because I think that the family issues are, are not resolved but are less critical than they were before. Far more people are being accepted across far more communities. I think that we need to think of things in a broader sense if the housing crisis in London and in the UK continues, if our politics continue in the the way that they seem to be then that doesn't bode well for the the more disconnected people in the community, whoever they are. And I think we should never assume that things are just going to get better and better in the last 12 months. If you can talk about the trans community meaningfully, the trans community has, in the UK, has felt that things have got more difficult in some ways. Mm. Um, And that transphobia has emerged in a way that it hasn't been experienced for quite a long time. It seems to be kind of organised to some extent. So I don't, I mean, it's difficult to predict, isn't it? I think, I think we shouldn't think about LGBTQ politics. I think we should think about our politics more fundamentally. And I think we really do need to change uh, economically and socially how we think about things. I wonder what then what it's like as like an older LGBTQ plus person to look at a younger generation. What that's like, you know, on your on your mental health and your well being. Yeah. I think mental health issues are a massive problem for for many people in this country now. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> for all sorts of reasons. Um, certainly for older LGBT people. And of course, that's, that impacts on their uh, ability to be social. So it impacts on their loneliness and isolation. Again, it comes back to the same thing. I, some people function better than others, don't they? So some people have survived and, and have survived and are now reflecting on it in a wistful kind of way rather than regretful way. Some people much older than me do things about it and many people who are what we would say are late transitioners and that's kind of nice isn't it to get there eventually not not easy for many people and of course people lose lose families at old stages of their life mm. um, so you could transition at the age of 60 and lose contact with your family on the other hand a lot of lesbian and gay people feel that they were lucky to live through an era where it suddenly became possible just to mm. be a lesbian or gay mm. so I mean there are, there are positives as well for, for people of that generation is it challenging working with uh, an older LGBTQ plus community where I suppose it seems that gender identity and trans issues are quite different in some ways to maybe identifying as a lesbian or gay? And how do those communities within LGBT react to each other? Again, I think there are, I know a number of older lesbians who 
will admit that they were probably fairly transphobic in the 70s, who have a phrase of strategic necessity that they've moved away from. There was a separatist movement in the 70s, not very extensive in this country, but it was there, it existed. And some of those communities wouldn't allow boy children in them. It was very, very radical. Crazy as it sounds, even male pets weren't allowed in the, the most extreme. Some things have travelled in general quite a long way, but there's, but some people hold on to these things. And it's, it's a minority of people, but they're very vocal. And they're the people who shout loudest about the vocal trans community. And yeah, I mean, this is just a difficult historical problem that we're having to address now. I, I, I must say, I have to absolutely stress that Opening Doors has a, a policy of non-tolerance towards any of this. Mm. Um, so if someone's racist or someone is sexist or someone is transphobic or someone is anti-disabled anti, um, people, they will be challenged and it's not acceptable to express anything like that in our in, in our groups or activities or anything. The, the reason I ask is because for, I think for Elena and I, one of the biggest differences for us and perhaps older feminists might be trans inclusion and that's sure, something yeah. that that's partly why you know we define as intersectional feminists why yeah. we, we're quite passionate to, to platform uh, voices and, and to talk about you know our third episode was on non-binary gender identities for yeah. example mm-hmm. but I wonder uh, how much of that is is fair and whether that's actually stopping us from having conversations with maybe older feminists or older LGBT yeah. do you think our perception is is right or do you think it's unfair actually I wouldn't totalize anything as I've said this a few times yeah <laughs> there are serious issues aren't there for feminism here and people feel challenged by things that are new and people feel they're being asked to accept something that was previously, perhaps in a very unexamined way, considered unacceptable. There's a kind of a, a meme kind of thing that says, well, we're not here to educate everybody all the time. And of course, it's wearying to be challenged all, or to be asked even politely all the time about yourself and your life and who you are and what it means and what have you had. But I think we should try and educate people politely as often as possible, people that are just inquiring. But so often, I think you've also got to be careful because some of the inquirers are quite disingenuous. They're looking for for a way in to be destructive rather than constructive. And the whole thing is quite worrying. In, in a very kind of banal expression of how wearing it is, I've stopped using Facebook pretty much because there's, there's so much of this stuff all the time on Facebook and it's just, my life is more than that and Facebook focuses it and narrows it down and, and sets oppositional kind of discourses we need to be intelligent about it I think, we need to recognise that there are shades of grey in most parts of life we need to create environments that are safe for people as much as possible if you talk about no platforming can't engage with someone who won't be engaged with. If you're just going to have a conversation with someone who isn't there to be engaged but is there to give a point of view that is destructive, harmful and essentially unacceptable, what's, what's the benefit there of the engagement? Does this play out a lot in, in opening doors when you have meetings and, and things like that or is it very rare because you've you've made that inclusive space. No, I think we had a, we had a meeting this week where diversity was absolutely brought up, not as an agenda item, but as a result of something that's happened recently. Um, and it's not just about sexuality or, or gender identity, but also about 
racism and we've formed a little working group again and so we, we should never be complacent about these things mm. we should always try and be better we should always try and be more inclusive we should always try and understand more I think Is there anything Sid and I for example were as like two young bi girls that mm. we would like take for granted as a result maybe of like the, the experiences of older LGBT people Yeah I think you would not you I went last month to our bi group for buying pan people called by the way because we like a nice pun and, <laughs> nice. Um, I think bi erasure is still a thing as well uh, I didn't declare my sexuality at the beginning but I identified as pansexual and the people that spoke at the meeting expressed this thing that I hadn't really come across before or thought about before people my age are a little bit older who said that they would go through this, this kind of cyclical stage of they came out as gay from a, a male point of view, I found a woman who found attractive and I thought, oh, I must be straight. Went the other one, oh, I found someone else that I find attractive and, and then identified as gay again and, did, and they sort of swung from one to the other and didn't have this feeling that they could be bisexual. Bi-activism has been happening in London certainly for the past 15 years with a very well-established group of people. So I think all this activism brings things to the front, doesn't it? If you think about Diva magazine, which 10 years ago, the politics were, I think, my, my, in my opinion, this is my personal opinion, were perhaps a bit questionable. But now it's far more embracing of bi, pan, genderqueer, trans, feminine people are, are much more validated, much more visible. And I think that is as a result of activists from older generations. So to the extent that I think you, you will both suffer by erasure, won't you? It came from inside the lesbian and gay community, didn't it? Older lesbian and gay people saying, no, you, you can't make your mind up, or you just want, you want the best of both worlds, or, yeah. or whatever it was. And I think that's changing. I think older people still struggle with it in their own communities a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so talking about intersectionality then, mm -hmm. do you know how ethnicity plays into this at all in terms of the specific issues that would be specific to people of colour? And I understand that you're not a person of colour and I totally get it if you don't want to speak on behalf. <laughs> but I guess in the interest of intersectionality and the topic... I can say something about it. I'm happy to say about it. OK, And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to speak on behalf of any communities. Yeah. Wednesday night this week, I went to the inaugural meeting of our Cutie Park group in Brixton, which is a storytelling group for older LGBTQ people. And they had someone from the black community talking about his life. And I learned something from a perspective that I didn't know about. This is what I think we need to do. We need to have people from communities of colour to do this with us, whether it's people who work for us or people we can uh, go into partnerships with. I think we, we had a discussion last week about partnership working. I think partnership working might be the way forward. I think it's something we don't understand very well. I think we should try and understand it much better. I think we recognise that there are far different conceptions of sexuality in different communities around the world. Um, but we're not very good at this, I think, in general. The legislation that we have is written for white people in general. You know, our, our culture is still very, very white. Um, and I think that the diversity that is reflected in our legislation, for example, I think is a kind of empty diversity. And you leave a lot of the cultural meaning that you could bring to, to organisations or to, to civic life 
behind if you want to make progress in society. So when you say that legislation is like still written for white people, mm. do you have any examples? I think if you have a, a law that talks about gay people, you're talking about a particular understanding of what it means to be gay, that it's, that it's a very white Western idea of what it means to be gay. It becomes naturalised, it becomes the way that we think gay is or sexuality is. And it's just not true. It's a possibility, it's a possible way of of being. If we think about the transitional, transgender journey, it's one way of being trans. And those are the assumptions that have underwritten the legislation for trans people in our parliaments. I think that's changing. It's there in the background, it underpins most of people's understanding. I never even took that into consideration at all to think that sexuality and gender identity has a completely like different or is treated completely different in different cultures and how like the way that we view it in in a traditional sense is pretty much how all of like government legislation and laws and policies are made and it's I never thought about that Amazing. So, uh, how can we be better allies to older LGBT people? To be better allies, I think you just... A, I think you should recognise what um, people have been through. I think we need to recognise that all of the progress that's been made has been made on the back of older people under incredibly difficult circumstances, being incredibly brave, moving things forward, having discussions being threatened with arrest, being threatened with social isolation on a, on a, on a huge scale. Um, so the recognition of that, I think, is very, very important to them. Get involved with older people charities. Talk to older people about these issues. Think of ourselves as you know, different aspects of the same community. Older people are interested in what younger people are doing. It's difficult sometimes to, to, to reach across generations, but this is very much what we one of the things that we really, really want to do. Is there anything that you're working on that we can platform, you know, if there's any research or anything that you're working on that you want to plug? We're expanding um, rapidly. We've, we, we've had a big change over the past 18 months. We're moving into areas of training um, different organisations. We're, we're becoming much more advocates and just how to that provide services for older people directly. So we have a, a small team of volunteers researchers but it's still I think it's still um, in its infancy and we will definitely be developing that as well how can we find out more about opening doors and support opening doors yeah uh, we have a website um, openingdoorslondon.org and we advertise everything that we do on the website you can give monthly to the, to the organisation, you can volunteer for the organisation, come along to our meetings, come along to our carol concert, which is a fundraiser, on the 8th of December. Lots of ways you can, you can help us. And is there a thing that you do where you pair people up with older LGBT people to yeah. meet up every so often? We have a befriending service, which goes all around London, and it's one older person, usually housebound, or certainly isolated in many ways, and they have one or sometimes more than one person that goes and visits them once every week or every two weeks. I think it's so beneficial for so many people. I would encourage anyone to get in touch with us and offer to befriend, definitely. That's really lovely. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Chrissy talking to us about the amazing work that Opening Doors do. And we cannot stress this enough that if you do have the spare time, please sign up to their befriending service and get to know an older LGBT person in London. And that episode was age. I think we learned not to be shy about our own age and not now and not ever. And it was really great to have you with us, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to it. As ever, let us know what you think because it helps make this a better platform. Email us, kickingthecariarchy at gmail.com. 
And always visit our website, www.kickingthekariaki.org. You can tweet us at Kickkariaki. Find us on Facebook, Kicking the Kariaki. Big thanks this episode to Becky Malone and Emma Hallahan for helping us edit this episode. Remember to take on board what our guests suggest. Meet older people, support older people and the organisations that work with them. And as my dad always says, if you're lucky, you'll get old. So if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. We appreciate it. That's it from us. Have a wonderful month, guys. Keep kicking the karaoke. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Cool. Yeah? Yeah. I thought that was all right. Yeah? (laughs) I'm fine with that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.